Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to be looking also in Mark chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you want to go to Mark chapter 9. So Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 9, and I'm even going to jump all the way over at the very end to Revelation chapter 1, okay? So those are the passages that we're going to today. Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 9, and Revelation chapter 1, all right? So those are the places I would like for you to join with me in just a moment. We are in the middle of a series that we've titled Average, and we've asked this question, what can God do with average people? What can God do with average you and me? What can God do? And the, re- the reality is this, that when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, when we begin to actually passionately pursue him, what happens is this, there's a radical transformation. And when Jesus called out his disciples, the overwhelming thought is that every one of these men are average. They're normal. They're ordinary. They're not super Christians. Matter of fact, they are definitely men who have feet made of clay. They have failures. They have faults. They have their own problems. And as we see each week, each one of them have struggles that they have to deal with. They have personality problems they have to get over. But the brilliance is this, is that in the brokenness and in our personalities and in our averageness, Jesus comes along and comes inside, brings them along, calls them into ministry and actually says, I can use you. And by the time they end their lives, they've been radically used by God. We can actually call them men of God. And to see where they started, that's a stretch. Today, we're talking about a man named John. We talked about his brother last week, and if you did not hear that message, you can get it on iTunes. Uh, The reason I say that is because today, as I'm I'm going to talk about a couple passages that I already preached last week, so I don't want to have to preach that again, um, and you don't want me to preach it again. Problem with John is this, is John wrote the entire gospel of John, then he wrote 1 John, a letter, then he wrote 2 John, another letter, then he wrote 3 John, another letter, and then he wrote Revelation. So the problem that I had was actually bringing it down to just 30 minutes. So instead of just going 30 minutes, we're going three hours today. Are you ready? Yeah, man, we're ready, all right? All right, just kidding. We're not going to go that, but we're going to go fast, okay? So you're going to have to hang in, dig in, get your minds ready. Here we go. Matthew chapter 10, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to start off. Here's what it says. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and then John, his brother. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this opportunity to be able to sing praises to you with my brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I just want to say thank you for the chance to celebrate how great you are. And God, I pray that as we sing, God, I pray that it was truly a sweet, sweet sound to you. And God, now as we look into your word and we take the next few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to move and work. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. And then God, I pray that you would give us the courage to apply to our lives what we've heard today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. 
So here we are. Let me introduce you to John just a real quick, uh, brief. Now, last week I introduced you to his brother, James. Um, both of these guys are very strong personalities. Their dad is Zebedee, which is very interesting. Throughout the gospels, you'll find that these two boys are actually referred to as the sons of Zebedee demonstrating that their, their dad had power, had influence in the area. Matter of fact, he had so much influence, we know that he actually knows the high priest. The high priest knows his family. And in just a little while, we'll be introduced to how the, even the high priest's servants know John well enough to allow John to go into the house of the high priest when Jesus was actually under trial for his being God. John is a fisherman. His dad has a business that's um, done very well in the northern part of Galilee. And so he's a great fisherman. He, he knows how to do it. His brother's a fisherman. He's a strong personality. He grew up with his brother, James, who is a strong personality. Jesus actually calls them the sons of what? Do you remember? Thunder. Very good. So the sons of thunder. Not NASCAR, but again, just the sons of thunder with quick tempers, hot passions, ready to go. The sons of thunder. His good friends are Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew, very much, again, strong personalities. The very first time we're introduced to John is this. John is out with his friend, Andrew, and they're listening to a preacher. They're not listening to a very meek and mild preacher. They're listening to a very strong and forceful preacher, a preacher who's not just being passive and kind of timid on the truth, but a preacher who's actually standing up and speaking very strong and forceful, saying, repent. You heathen, you need to trust and follow God. And they're out in the wilderness and this preacher eats crazy things. Do you remember this? Locusts and what? Wild honey, you got it. So he dresses kind of strange. And so he's out there listening with his friend, Andrew. And John the Baptist stops. And in the middle of his preaching, he says, behold, the lamb of God. And Jesus is walking across the hill. And as he walks across the hill, that's the Messiah. That's the one we're talking about. That's him. That's the one who's going to come. That's the one who was prophesied about coming. He will take away the sins of the world. What an incredible truth for us today, right? Because today we even find as people, we long to be connected to God. We long to be forgiven. And it's this Jesus. It's him that can forgive. It's him that restores our relationship with God. It's him who brings us into right relationship. It's Jesus. So John and Andrew, they hear this and immediately they leave John the Baptist and they go and they start following Jesus. And Jesus says, what are you guys doing? Well, Jesus, where do you sleep? Well, Jesus says, come on boys, let's go. And they talk for G with Jesus that afternoon and that evening. And after that, they're convinced this is the Messiah. John is one of the inner three. He has a strong passion to be in the middle of the action. He's like that little brother that's a little hyper, yeah? You ever had a little brother that's hyper or maybe you have siblings and they're just, he's, he's right in the middle of everything. Jesus actually brings him into the inner three. Peter, James, and John. They form the most inner circle, the most intimate circle around Jesus. And everywhere in the gospels, there's action, John is right there with Peter. He's right there with James. They're right in the middle. If it's trouble, they're there. If it's good, they might be there, but they like the trouble. They like the action part. That's where they're at. Jesus brings them in. Matter of fact, 
Jesus brings them into so many different parts of this that what we find is this, that John so loves the action, you will not find him really too far removed from Jesus. At the Last Supper, where's John? Do you remember? Is he down at the end of the table? No. He's right next to Jesus. He's the youngest of all the disciples. He's right there. And so it's almost like the disciples kind of put up with him a little bit too. Okay, this is the little guy. We'll just kind of bring him along. We'll just have to kind of put up with John for just a little bit. And John has this over attention for, I got to be in the middle. Now, here's a question. What can God do with a hyperactive, passionate person who wants to be involved in all the action? What can God do with that? Can God do anything with that? The answer is yes, he can. And what does he do? Takes John and he makes him an eyewitness. 70 times in the gospels and in his letters, John says this, I am an eyewitness. I've watched, I've watched God move. I've watched God work. I know who Jesus is. I've walked with Jesus. I'm an eyewitness. Is an eyewitness important? Yeah, because they're not getting secondhand information. They're getting eyewitness. I was there. I saw Jesus heal. I saw Jesus do this. I saw the apostles do this. I saw the apostles do that. He walks through 70 plus times to say, I was there. I love Because sometimes I kind of wonder, what can God do with some of my hyperactive children? That's just, it's just honest. It's just, I don't know. You know, you try to, you know, you just try to beat it out of them a little bit, you know? Just kidding. But, you know, you just wonder. You just wonder, what what is God going to do? There's so much activity. How do you calm them down? You know, you stop the cokes and you just ask the question. And then you come to John and you're going, good, they're going to be an eyewitness of something. Hopefully it's going to be good. Hopefully it's going to be something God doing something great. But John was an eyewitness. Let me show you something else that John is. John is a man with strong, absolute extremes. Right, wrong, black, white, no middle ground. You ever met somebody like that? No middle ground. There can't be any middle ground. It has to be either it's all or nothing. It's either all good or it's all bad. And you remember last week we talked about John and his his passion for, or James and his passion for right and wrong. If you remember, John had such extreme personality problems that here's where he was at. When he and his brother and the disciples were traveling through Samaria and they would not allow Jesus to stay in the Samaritan village. Do you remember how John responded? Him and his brother, James, they said, hey, Jesus, can we kill everybody? Whoa, wait, that's extreme. Nope. Jesus is the Messiah. You should follow him. You should give him everything. They said, no, we're not giving it. So they should just die now. And not just die in a, just a calm and easy fashion, like poison. No, let's call fire down from heaven. Let's kill them all. Now, this is a guy, again, it's extreme. What can God do with somebody with extremes? Can God use somebody like that? I mean, extreme, extreme. Can God do somebody? Right, wrong, black, white, no middle ground? Let me give you some some thoughts because here's what God does. God makes John the defender of truth. 45 times throughout his writings, you see John talk about truth and he writes about truth and he defends truth. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are my, my brothers, my sisters, the one who I'm teaching walk in what? Truth. 
That's his greatest joy, to make sure that they're walking in truth. Does John ever lose his extremes? Not too much. You read his gospels, what does he do? He shows the extremes. Light versus dark. Life against death. Kingdom of God against the kingdom of the devil. The children of God against the children of Satan. Judgment of the righteous against the judgment of the wicked. The righteous resurrection of the life against resurrection of damnation. Receiving Christ, rejecting Christ, bearing much fruit versus being fruitless, obedience versus disobedience, love against hatred. You almost wear yourself out. He goes from extreme to extreme, showing and trying to demonstrate truth. Then you get to his epistles, his letters. First John, watch what he says. Whoever abides in him, in God, does not sin. <laughs> what? Now, let's, let's be honest. Let's stop right there. Is that hard to hear? If you abide in God, then you're not going to sin. And he continues. He says, okay, whoever sins has never, neither seen God nor knows God. Okay, we don't have to really take a real quick poll, but let's be real honest. Everyone in this room, if you have trusted Jesus Christ, have you still sinned? The answer is yes. And here's John writing saying, hey, if you sin, you don't love God. You walk in sin, you don't love God. He continues and he says this, if you're born of God, you don't sin. First John 3, 9. First John 4, 4. We either are of God or we're of the world. First John 4, 7. If we love other people, if we love people, we are born of God. If we don't love people, then we're not born of God. You start reading John and you start reading, you see those extremes played out, don't you? And it's hard, you're going, whoa, this is extreme. And for John, he never lets down truth. He defends it over and over again. Either you really love God or you really don't. And at the core, let's be honest, when we sin, we love our sin more than we love God. He's a defender of truth. Now, just in case you need to find grace somewhere, you go read Paul after you read John, all right? So Paul's the guy of exceptions and gives you grace and says, well, here's the grace, here's where the grace comes in. But John falls in line with the extremes. Now, something else that we find, Mark chapter nine. Mark chapter nine, you have your Bibles? Let me show you this man who, strong passions, right, wrong, strong extremes. And in Mark chapter nine, what we find is, and an interesting statement because here's a man who has a very hard problem giving grace and loving people. He has very low tolerance for affection. Mark chapter nine, it starts off with the Mount of Transfiguration. This is where Jesus goes up on the side of the mountain and up on the side of the mountain, something incredible happens. Peter, James, and John are the only three that get to witness this. Jesus is up on the mountainside and all of a sudden, two Old Testament dead guys come back. Elijah and Moses. And they come back and here they are. They start glowing and all of a sudden, Jesus starts glowing and they're going, oh, this is amazing. What's going on? And they have this conversation, Jesus with Moses and Elijah. And then after they, they have that moment, they start coming down and Jesus tells the three guys, he says, guys, don't tell anybody. What? Don't tell anybody. Are you, what? That was so amazing. 
my mind is blown right now. I can't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody, guys. So they get down. All the other disciples come around and they start walking to the next village. And what happens over in verse 33, Mark chapter 9, Jesus finally gets to the next city and he stops and he asks a question. Hey, guys, what were you discussing on the way? <laughs> this is amazing because what happens now is, hey, 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 disciples, what were you discussing? Well, Jesus, when we came down off the mountain, well, everybody else wanted to know what we were doing. And we told them, it was amazing. It was great. It was fantastic. But we can't tell you. What? Well, we can't tell them really what happened on the mountain. So all we had to do was we had to talk about who's going to be the greatest. What? Who's going to be the greatest? Yeah, who's going to be the greatest? We know, obviously, it's not the other nine disciples. It has to be one of us three. Why? Well, we got, to the, we got special treatment. We were up on the mountain. No, really. So who's going to be the greatest? We're going to be the greatest. One of us has got to be the greatest. Somebody's got to be the greatest. And they're arguing back and forth, okay? And as they argue back and forth, Jesus says, guys, you're idiots. I've talked about this already. I've already told you about this. And so Jesus comes back and he begins to teach. He says, verse 35, he sets them all down. He says, okay, guys, let's talk. If anyone wants to be first, he must be what? If anyone wants to be first, he must be what? If anyone wants to be first, he must be? That doesn't make sense. Guys, if you want to be first and you're wanting to be the greatest, you're wanting to be the leader, you need to be last and you need to learn what that looks like. And you need to become what? A servant of all. Then Jesus takes a child. Now this is strange because for us, we don't really look down on kids in our society, but at this moment, at this time, if you were serving the kids and you were helping out with the kids, you were kind of looked down upon because that's a lowly task. That's a task for either your servants or that's a task for women. And women were really second-class citizens anyway. So men wouldn't be actually taking care of the kids. And so Jesus actually stops and says, okay. And he brings the kids over and he says, guys, if you really want to learn how to be the greatest, then what do you need to do? Whoever receives a child in my name, right? And whoever will receive me. Guys, you need a new definition of leadership. You need a new definition of what it means. Now, this is where it gets fun because John, right here in the middle, this is pure John. You will never see anywhere else in the gospels where John is outside and speaking outside of his brother. His brother's always tied in. It's always James and John. But in this moment, at this time, what you'll find is John speaking by himself. So this is pure John, okay? And what we're fixing to find is something that happens, maybe even has happened in your home. Um, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about grades. School has started. So in my home, there's grades and we're talking about grades. We're talking about schoolwork, talking about how well you're doing. And we talk about a bad grade with one of my kids. Wow, what happened? What's going on? We're talking. And do you know what happens? One of the other kids comes in and says, math, you're talking about math? Hey, guess what, mom, dad? I got a hundred in my math. You ever had that happen? At the wrong time, at the wrong place, when we're not even talking about that grade, we're not even talking about them, right? So here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus has gathered the disciples. He's rebuking them and he's teaching them. 
you've got it wrong. You shouldn't be arguing. And in the midst of his rebuke and getting on to the disciples and teaching and correcting them, John jumps up and says, Jesus, I've got something to say. Are you ready to hear it? Look what John says. Hey, Jesus, guess what? Verse 30, 38, Jesus said to, or John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Aren't we good? I did a good job, didn't I? Because he was not following us. Now, if you look at this, this is pretty comical because this is like a little child trying to manipulate and trying to get positive affirmation at the wrong time, at the wrong moment. And John's showing his elitism saying, if you're not really with us, then you're not really for us. You're not really, you're really against us if you're not with us right now. So since he's not with us, Jesus, even though he's casting out demons in your name, he shouldn't actually be doing that because he's not one of us. That's funny. And John is right in the middle saying, this is how it should be done. Right, wrong, black, white. You see all the extremes. You see the manipulation for power, trying to get Jesus to give him positive. Oh, good job, John. And Jesus stops and says, John, buddy, I love you, but don't stop him. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is what? For us. John, you need to learn something new. You need to see how to love. You need to actually have grace and you need to learn how to hold your truth and your absolutes at the same time you're holding love. What can God do with somebody who has very little tolerance for people, very little tolerance for loving and caring? Can God actually ever do anything with them? Let me answer you. He takes John who has very little affection for people and he makes John the disciple of love. Over 80 times, more than any other word John uses, John uses the word love. And when he writes to people, as he writes, he talks about being loved, my dear children, my beloved, the ones that I deeply care about, the ones that I, I'm just overly passionate for, my beloved family of God, the dear children. He calls himself a child, so he's not belittling. He says, I care for you deeply. He talks about love, talks about how God loves the world. You remember John three sixteen, For God so loved the world. He tells us not only about God's love, he talks about how God loves Jesus, how Jesus loves God, how Jesus loved the disciples, how Jesus loves the world. He continues on about how that because Jesus loved the world, then we now as believers, you ready for this? Ought to love one another. And over and over again, while he's talked about truth, now he's bringing in love and he's saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. This is how you love one another. Love one another looks this way. And he teaches. John ends up going to about 98 AD. That's a long time. He outlives everybody. And in Ephesus, he takes over the pastorate in Ephesus where Paul is at. He was so frail that they would actually bring his body in and they would carry him in and he would get up and they would set him on a chair and then he would begin to teach. And as he was old, here's what they, he would say coming into the church. Dear children, love one another. Dear children, love one another. Dear children, love one another. 
They ask him, why do you say that so often? He said, the Lord commands it. And if that's all we do, that is enough. Love one another. He took John, who didn't have much affection for people, and he made him the disciple of love. His theology really centers around love. It's amazing. The one last thing that I have to share and we have to walk through is this. The extremes, a man with great extremes, great passion, a lack of love for people, a man who had a wrong view of leadership, who desired others to serve him. That's John. He wanted other people to serve him. His view of leadership came from his parents. His parents, well off, they did well, they had servants, they just, that's exactly what they had. And if you remember last week, we talked about their mom. Do you remember this? How that James and John were willing to manipulate at whatever it cost so that they could have power, position with Jesus. They asked their mom to come in. Mom, would you ask Jesus for it? This is after Jesus has already taught in chapter nine of Mark after Jesus has already taught them over and over and over again, you are the greatest if you serve. Mom, would you go ask for Jesus to give us the the power positions, the greatest power, the greatest positions in the land? And the mom, somehow, she feels like it's justified and it's okay. Again, I would say that has to come from her background and her position. She believed that her sons deserved it. So she goes and asks Jesus, Jesus, will you let my sons be at the right hand? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. No idea. You remember this last week? And Jesus asked the question. Do you remember the question? Jesus asked the question, can you boys actually bear the cup that I have? Can you actually, and both of them, the cup of suffering, can you actually endure the suffering? And both of them do what? Instead of backing away when they talk about suffering, what do they do? They jumped up and said, absolutely, we can handle it. Bring on the suffering. We can handle whatever it takes. We want that power. We want that position. And Jesus says, all right, it's easy to volunteer. But what you need to learn is how to serve. And so here's what we find for John. John begins to learn what it means to serve. And here's where I will show you, I think, one of the greatest lessons that John learns The Last Supper, Jesus takes off his robe. You remember the story, and he puts on an apron, and he goes over, and he begins to serve. There's no other disciple who writes about this event except for John. And John, I believe, is so moved that he saw a leader doing something else because in his mind, a leader has power, a leader has position, a leader gets to tell everybody else what to do and a leader gets everybody to serve them. That's what John's background was. That's his whole mind and makeup of a leader. And in this moment, John is so moved by Jesus that he has to write about it. He has to write, Jesus did this. Nobody else writes about it. And from this moment on, he saw a leader do something radically different, serve. So John does something from this moment on. He begins to actually serve instead of vie for position. He serves, first of all, by being loyal. He's loyal to Jesus. When Jesus is taken just a few hours later in the garden, all the disciples flee. But in just a few hours, he's at, Jesus is at the high priest's home and John goes in and he's at the trial. He remains loyal 
He remains so loyal that at the cross, when Jesus is on the cross, at the crucifixion, there's only ladies in front, no disciples except for who? John. John's the only disciple who understands, I now need to serve. And he comes in and he serves by remaining loyal. And he's there at Jesus' feet on the cross. Jesus speaks seven times from the cross. One of those times he speaks to John and he tells John, he says, this is my mom. Now she's your mom. Mom, this is now your son. He asks John to take care of his mom. John remains loyal to that commitment. Church history, all documents say that John kept Mary with her until, with him until she died. Some say that they stayed in Jerusalem until she died. Others said that John took Mary to Ephesus where he began to preach. But either way, all documents point that John continued to keep that commitment. John also had to learn what it means to, to serve by using his gifts. He becomes a great pastor and in pastoring, he cares for people. And let me show you something. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter one. John writes, and as John writes about how to care, he uses these gifts and he loves people. And in John, he learns what it means, John's life, he learns to what it means to actually serve and care. Now, here's where I'm gonna end. John, in his entire gospel, never mentions his own name. He actually says, the one whom Jesus loved. And I'll be honest, several years ago, as I was studying that and I was walking through that, I thought John was basically arrogant and proud by saying that. I thought, well, shoot, doesn't Jesus love everybody? Doesn't Jesus love all the disciples? I seemed almost arrogant and proud. But this time walking through, here's what I kind of came back to. I think John, as he learned who Jesus was and as he began to love people, here's what I believe. I believe that he was so humbled by the fact that Jesus would love him and that Jesus would care for him that every time he came to his name and when he was giving the accounts of what Jesus did when he was there, that he could not bring himself to draw attention to himself, but he had to draw attention to Jesus. And he was overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus would love a guy with all the faults and all this stuff. Well, Heath, why do you say that? Why do you think he was that humble? Because in Revelation chapter one, John has now been a preacher. He's pastored. He's somewhere around 95 to 98 AD is where we're at. The emperor Domitian has now taken John and taken John away from his pastorate, away from his hometown and now put John in not a jail cell, but on an island called Patmos to live out his days and to die. And John, who is now at this point, the most authoritative man on the planet when it comes to Jesus and it comes to religion. There's nobody greater because he's outlived everybody. John writes this, I, John, your what? Your brother. I think there's a humility in the fact that he says, I'm right here with you. I'm right here in the middle with you. I'm not greater than you. I'm right here with you. Your brother in what? And partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patience and endurance. You see how he ties tribulation and suffering with patience? John had to learn here at the end what it means to fully serve. And fully serving means this, guys, suffering. John endured suffering. And here's what, here's what I believe was one of the greatest things that John does. He goes from a man who's willing to 
kill everyone to a man who's willing to endure patiently the suffering for the cause of Christ. This man watched his brother be the first disciple martyred. He saw his brother's head chopped off. And can I just stop right here? Because here's, where I, here's what I see. As a pastor in America, in American churches, when your family goes through suffering, more often than not, Christians, their faith crumble. And John at this moment, and instead of his faith crumbling, he actually watches his brother be killed. He watches every other apostle, every other disciple that he's actually been a part of. He's watched church family after church family be martyred, be put in jail, be beaten. He's watched all of his friends, his lifelong friends go through pain and suffering. And there is something for this. You ready? There is something for outliving everybody. There's a pain and suffering for outliving all your friends. There's a pain and suffering for outliving all your, your kin, a pain and suffering for outliving all your close colleagues. And John has gone through it and his faith has not wavered, but his faith has gotten stronger. And in this moment, he says, I'm writing to you as the last living person, your brother in suffering and your brother in the midst. My faith is stronger. And how do I know that his faith was stronger? Because on the Isle of Patmos, when nobody else was around on Sunday, do you know what John was doing? Read Revelation chapter one. It says, on Sunday, the Lord's day, I was in prayer and I was worshiping God. <laughs> That's when Jesus shows up and gives him the revelation. It blows my mind. Here's what we need. We need men and women who are willing, who are willing to actually go through the trials of this life, to hold the tension of truth and love at the same time to actually defend, to actually be willing to grow. With all of our weakness, we have weakness. With all of our weakness, John is probably one of the greatest examples of transformation because at the end of his life, he goes completely opposite of where he started. Three things, write them down and we're done. I'm right, saying them very quick and we're done. Three things, these are something we need to walk through. Truth and love, it's a tension and it's a great tension. Here's what we need to know from John's life. Truth without love is brutality. It's brutal. If you don't show love and you don't care for people, you can go talk to them about heaven. You can talk to them about God. But if you're sharing truth and you never share the love, it's just brutal. Love without truth is what? Hypocrisy. If you really love somebody, you have to tell them the truth. You can't love without bringing the truth in. And the last thing is this, for all of you strong leaders, all you people who are desiring leadership and positions, the greater the service, the greater the influence. Work towards serving at a greater capacity. And you allow God to do the rest. And it'll be amazing to watch what he does with your life. 